Uh, I'd like for you, if you would, to uh, turn to Luke 4. Luke 4. Third, uh, third book in the New Testament. We're going to look at a word. I'm going to do something different, a little different tonight than normal, normal lesson. I want to look at, do a kind of a word study. And we're going to think about how this word is used in uh, all of the scripture. Uh, I think there's, there's a place and time to do something like this, so I want to do it with you tonight. Um, the word is proclaim, and it, I'm, I'm using the ESV, and, and so that's the, it may be translated a little bit different some of the translations that you've got in front of you. Uh, but I'm going to key in on, on that way that it's used in the ESV tonight. Just for a few minutes as we think about Think about how some of these, these words are used. It's interesting to trace how God inspired his people to use different words. And, and, and usually we key in on a, on a you know, body of text, a paragraph usually, and think about what that means. This is standing back from the text a little bit. It's standing back from the, from the text at, at, at a higher elevation and looking down on the entire body of scripture, all 66 books, and thinking about how God takes this theme that he expressed in a word and, and how it goes through the entire scripture. So that's going to be the point of tonight's lesson as we wrestle with this for the next little bit. Glad you're here. Hope you've had a good day. If you're visiting with us, we welcome you. Especially, we mean that. We do hope you'll come back and see us again. I know I met some visitors this morning, and hopefully we've got some visitors tonight. We uh, hope you'll come back and be with us again very soon. Our text that we're going to start with, though we will skip around more than we normally do, uh, we're going to start with Luke 4, and we're going to read this five, these five, six verses here, six verses where Jesus goes to his hometown and he preaches. Now, let me tell you a little bit about how they did this before we read the text itself. Uh, this, what happens is Jesus goes to Nazareth. This is a place where he was raised. He was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, and then he ultimately moved to Capernaum. That was kind of his home base when he became an adult. But this was his hometown. These were his people. And he goes into the synagogue, and he's going to be a part of the synagogue service. This is what a synagogue service looked like. You can, actually, you can actually go online and see, if you're interested, the, the layout of the synagogue building itself. Very similar. A lot of the Christian worship uh, has some parallels in, in the synagogue worship. Synagogue was was a place, a building, that they would construct in, in, in cities in the ancient world all over the place that had 10 Jewish adult males in the city. They would, they would usually have a synagogue, had to have at least 10. So they would build a synagogue, a building, kind of like a church building. And it would be organized kind of in, in some ways similar to the way we, we organize ours with seat, seating, and it would have some sort of a podium at the front of the front of the synagogue. Anyway, they would have these synagogue services and they would, they would come together to worship. And here's what they would do. Here's the, here's the order of worship that they followed in many respects. Um, number one, they would do the, they would have the recitation of the Shema. Remember the Shema? We've studied this a couple times in the past few years. Uh, that's Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 through 9 where right before they went into the land of Canaan, God gathered the people together and Moses gave them a couple of long speeches in the book of Deuteronomy. And as he's with the people, very beginning of this section, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. You know? And he goes on. These words 
which I command you today shall be in your heart. You teach them diligently to your children and so on. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. It's called the Shema because the first word is Shema in Hebrew, uh, which translated into English is hear, H-E-A-R, listen. So they would, this is very important to Jewish people. So at the beginning of the synagogue service, they would, they would recite together the Shema. Now the next thing they would do is they would pray. They would have a public prayer and uh, sometimes these were set prayers. They would all recite some prayers together based on some collection of scriptures from the Old Testament, some, some collection of psalms, uh, other things. They would, they would have these prayers that they would say together. And so they would recite the Shema, they would say these prayers, and then they would have a selection of reading from the Torah, from the uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament. So they'd have some sort of selection that they would read from the Torah, and then they would have a selection of, of reading from the prophets, so from the last 17 books of the Old Testament. And then they would have a, they called it, it was called an exposition, they'd have a sermon. And in that sermon, the, the guy who's doing the sermon would sit down and then he would, usually what he would do is he would show how these texts relate. And so he would take the text from the law and he would take the text from the prophets and he would, he would connect them in some way to show, he would basically, this is what we'd call a sermon. I mean, he would teach and he'd take the selected text and he would show them how they relate. <coughs> so, Shema, prayers, Law, prophets, sermon. That was the synagogue service. So you can see some parallels. I know that they sometimes had, they, they had singing as well. Um, but these were the standard things that they, they followed. So I wanted, you to, I wanted to mention that to you so that you see, we don't get a full glimpse here, but so that you get an idea of what the service was like as we read about one here now. So he came to, to Nazareth, verse 16, Luke 4. Came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as, his, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So, you, you get an idea if, that, if, there, if our order of worship is, is right. You, you've already had the recitation of the Shema. You've already had the prayers. You've already had the reading from the law. And then Jesus stands up to read. And they open the text and the selected reading for the day is from the prophets. And then he sits down. And so... When he sat down, the reason everybody looked at him was because they were expecting him, after completing the reading from the prophets, that he was going to give the exposition of the day. He was going to explain what the reading he just gave, that he just read, meant, and perhaps how it tied into the text from the law that he had already read, or somebody had already read. So they, they looked at him, and his exposition, his sermon was really short. You guys would like this sermon, right? This is a very short sermon. He said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, which is a fascinating thing for him to say. You read on down in the text, which we're not going to do today, but they're going to end up trying to kill him. Uh, they don't like what he says here. They, they, they understood what, he's, what he was saying was a, 
was a prophetic kind of thing. He was making a statement that somebody would not make unless, unless the person had some, you know, some kind of revelation. So the text itself is from Isaiah 61, most of it. Uh, and uh, he's, he's reading Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and then he gets to the end of it. He's going to give the exposition, exposition, and he says, okay, the, the fulfillment of this that we just read, today, in your hearing, this is, this is the fulfillment. Now, I want to put that before you. I wanna, we're going to skip around now. We're going to come back, and we'll end up here in a, in a minute. But I want to think about that word, so, because this is an important biblical word. There are words that you have in the Bible that come up again and again, and they, they, they carry with them some special meaning. And this is one of them. So the word, word proclaim for a couple minutes. Let's think about it. It's used three times in the text we just read. Verse 18, he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Verse 19, he has sent me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So it's used three times there. But I want us to take a short trip through the Old Testament and on into the New Testament to think about what the word means, how it's used. So... Word proclaim. It's used 65 times in about 62 different verses in the Bible. Uh, and it's used in some pretty, pretty neat ways. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that you see in the Old Testament when the word proclaim is used is it's used often like it's used in Exodus 33. Let me tell you a little bit of the background of Exodus 33 so that you're familiar with what he's talking about when he gets to it. But you remember in the book of Exodus, the they had gone to, the, the, to, to Mount Horeb, to Mount Sinai, and they had got it inscribed with his finger, the Ten Commandments. You know, Moses was up there getting the Ten Commandments, and he, he and Joshua came down from the mountain. Remember, getting, getting the law. Remember what the first commandment was? I know the gods before me. Don't make any graven images, and so on. Come down from the mountain, he and Joshua. They hear some noise, some racket going on. Joshua says, it's the sound of war. Moses says, no, that's not war. That's a party. That's the, that's the sound of, of, of reveling, you know, these, these people are having a, having a party. So they get down there, and what has happened while they were gone is they had persuaded Aaron to, you know, we don't know what happened to Moses. They, he led us out here in the wilderness to die, and uh, we don't know. We don't know what's going on. So, so Aaron said, give me your gold, and they take the gold, and they melt it, and they create this golden calf. And behold, Israel, this is the gods that led you out of Egypt. That's, that's the scene, all right? So after that happened, of course, God was furious with them. It was a big deal because they were violating the very essence of what it meant to be in relationship with him. And so at, at the end of that, what happens is, is God says, I'm done with you. And I don't think God's really done with them. I don't think he intended to be done with them. Testing their faith, testing Moses a bit maybe, but God says, I'm done with you. You can go on up. If you read back in Exodus 33, you go on up to the land of Canaan and fine, just go on up. But I'm not going with you. I'm not going to go with you. Moses has a, has a come apart, uh, as you might expect. A how, and the people are distressed as well. How are we going to go up and take the land? How are we going to go up to Canaan if you're not with us? How are we going to do this? We can't, we can't go. And so... Moses pleads with God and says, you know, we can't go without you. I'm giving you the background because I, I want you to hear what, what God says. So at the end of this text, Exodus 33, 19, Moses ends up saying, God says, I'll go with you. And Moses says, I want to see you, God. I want to see you. I want to I be able to see you. Not just an image of you, not just a likeness of you, not just a shadow of you. I want to see you. And, and God says, here's what I'm going to do. Verse 19 says this, 
He said, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So he says, in essence, he says, Moses, I'm going to let myself, my being, my person pass before you. And I will, here's our word, I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. That's that word that we've studied before. That name signified by all caps there, Yahweh. I, I, will, pro, I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. This is that text, if you remember, this is that occasion when God, you know, he, he covers Moses so he can't see, and God passes by and he says, as I'm passing by, you'll be able to see. Uh, I always remember the King James Version of this. You will see my hinder parts. Remember that? And it's, I don't know exactly what that means. You know, it's just, I think, I think probably what it means is, Moses, you can't see me. You don't want to see me because you'll die. But he he's like sees the remnant after God passes through, some sort of remnant, some sort of, I don't know. Uh, but but it's, a, it's a neat theme where God is, basically says, I'm going to pass before you. But the interesting thing is, he says to Moses, I will proclaim to you my name, Yahweh, the Lord, which is how he had revealed himself to him 30 chapters earlier at the burning bush when Moses encountered God, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. Moses has this conversation with God where God says, I want you to go back to Egypt and lead my people out. Moses says, I can't do that. They're going to ask me who sent me. And God said, tell them that I am that I am sent you. God reveals himself to them with the name Yahweh. And, and so here in Exodus 33, he says, I'm going to pass before you and I will proclaim my name. This is an interesting thing. So here's the thing I want you to remember from this, this part, is that when the word proclaim is used in the Old Testament, usually there's an emphasis on proclaiming that God is the Lord, that God is Yahweh. He is the God, not a God. He is the God. He is, he is the creator. He is, he's, he's the only God. He's sovereign. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's all these eternal attributes manifested in him. Uh, for example, let me read you a couple others. Deuteronomy 32, 3, for I will proclaim the name of Yahweh, ascribe greatness to our God. In the Old Testament, when the word proclaim is used, usually it's talking about the name of God and all the wonderful things God does. In Psalm 40, verse 5, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they're more than can be told. Psalm 71, 17, O God, from my youth you've taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. Isaiah 12, and verse 4, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples proclaim that his name is exalted and they go on and on and on but the message that comes through is God proclaims his name and he calls upon his people to proclaim his name and his amazing deeds to the nations that's the theme that goes through the Old Testament now come to the New Testament and come back to come back to our text for for a minute because I think what you've got when you come to the New Testament is you've got this proclamation that's given and it's essentially the same message. But here's the thing. Here's the difference. 
You know in the Old Testament, there was always distance between God and people after the fall. After Genesis 3, God says, Adam and Eve, you get out of the garden. He puts up the cherubim, the flaming swords, protecting the entrance, you know. Signifying God, God is, must, must keep a distance from an unholy people. Holy God must be distant from an unholy people. So that, that's, that's throughout the Old Testament. Even when God comes to the people, he covers up Moses' eyes and shows him, you know, the hinder parts. Uh, when, when God reveals himself to the people in the temple, you've got this distance. You've got this huge, very thick veil that, that walled off this little room where, where God would show himself, you know, smoke and fire and lightning and all that. Um, but there's a dis- don't, don't come up on the mountain because if you come, if anybody touches the mountain while I am descending on the mountain, what happens to them? Remember that? What happens to them? They, they die, right? Don't, don't let anybody touch the mountain. Don't let any of the animals touch the mountain. Why? Because God's holy and you're not and you can't be in the presence of God. But you've got this message throughout the Old Testament which is the proclamation, God is Yahweh and God is an amazing God and he does incredible things for his people. So come to the New Testament. People are used to being apart from God. Can't go into the inner sanctum of the temple. You'll die. Uh, God is distant. We don't know what he looks like. He's, we know his name. We know what he's done. But we don't know him personally. You know? So, very first words of John's gospel. Uh, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. And without him is not anything made that was made. So, so John introduces his gospel by saying, let's go back to Genesis. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. John says, in the beginning the word was there. The word was with God. The word was God. And the word did the creating. Or, 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 through the word the, the, the earth was created. Everything was created. So John ties in that text with, with the Old Testament Yahweh, Right? But then he goes down to verse 14 and he says, you remember this? Verse 14, he says, and the word, the creating word, the God word, the Lord Yahweh, the word became flesh. Throughout the Old Testament, proclaim the Lord, uh, God is Yahweh and he does amazing things, but you can't get too close to him because you'll die if you do. John starts off his gospel by saying, Yahweh, the Lord, has a body. He's in the flesh. He's in the flesh. And so in the Old Testament, God is Yahweh. In the New Testament, Yahweh is Jesus. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. God is Jesus. God has revealed himself in, in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. And so when Jesus, in our text that we started with in Luke 4, when he, when he reads this text, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim, this is a God thing, to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's a God thing. And he, and he stands, or he sits down, the people look at him and he says, this day, this reading is fulfilled in your hearing. This is God's proclamation. This is Yahweh. This is, I mean, it's a very subtle kind of indirect way of saying it, but he's identifying himself with the God of Yahweh. 
And he's saying to the people, I have come to do what only God can do. Only God fulfills Isaiah 61. And I'm doing that. Proclaim. Okay, so what? I think with biblical themes, we always ought to have a so what. It's not always going to be a clear one, but we always ought to ask the question, what does this mean to you, to, to me today? Proclaim, the Old Testament says God is Yahweh. The New Testament says God, Yahweh, is Jesus. He's, he's got a name, an, an earthly name. He is Jesus, the Christ. He's born to Mary, his father from all earthly appearances is Joseph. You know, he's a carpenter's son. He's got flesh and bones like everybody else. You know, this is, this is Jesus. He's, the proclamation of the New Testament is that Jesus has come and he is God. So I want to flow, let that flow out to, a, to an emphasis on, on what do we proclaim. And I'm not going to talk about this for long. I really want, want to leave you with one, one main idea. And that idea is God has called us to be proclaimers. That word proclaim is used throughout the New Testament. It's used like three times in Luke 4, but it's used in other places. It's used in places like Mark 16, verse 15, where after the resurrection of Jesus, before his ascension, it says, he said to them, go into all the world. And uh, I know the King James says, and go into all the world and preach the gospel, right? The ESV says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Same word there. Is you. So there's this idea that the Old Testament proclaims the goodness of God and who he is. Jesus proclaims that, that, that God has revealed himself in Jesus. And then the proclamation goes on, and, and it goes on through you and me. And we are to carry on the work of the Old Testament and the work of Jesus in his proclamation. We're to carry that torch on, and we are to be proclaimers. Lots of times it's used to preachers, but not exclusively so. It's, it's, it's a proclamation that you and I as God's people give today. So here's the, here's the idea. And I, I hope your question would be, what do we proclaim? I think we proclaim the same thing the Bible proclaims. Here's a, a little bit of an emphasis I want to I wanna mention. I think normally when we talk about the gospel or when we talk about personal evangelism, we put a whole lot of emphasis on proclaiming what people ought to do. And we should. There's, there needs to be an emphasis on what people should do. But it's interesting that when the Bible talks about proclaiming, the emphasis is more on what God has done. So throughout the Old Testament, there's an emphasis on God is God, God is Yahweh, and this is what He has done. In the New Testament, there's an emphasis on proclaiming that Jesus is God, and look at what He's done. There's an emphasis more on, it's a, it's a theocentric kind of emphasis. It, it points at God, it points at Jesus. And I think sometimes maybe our trepidation in sharing our faith comes from the emphasis that we've always had, and that is, I need to make sure I can tell people what they need to do and answer their questions about what they ought to do and what they ought not do, and here's, the, here's, you know, here's what the Bible teaches about that. And I'm not saying that's wrong, that we need to emphasize that at a, at a point. I'm only saying that that 
needs to come. At least biblically speaking, it comes after we've put a whole lot of emphasis on the first part. So what does it mean to be an evangelist today? What does it mean for you guys to be evangelists, to be proclaimers? What does that look like? I'd suggest to you, and this is really the, the thing I want you to remember, if you remember anything at all, I want you to remember this. If you have people who don't know Christ, don't start by telling them what they need to do. Don't, don't lead with that. Don't, don't talk about baptism. Don't, don't talk about morality. Don't talk about getting their ethics and morality fixed and, and stuff like that. Don't, don't, you don't talk about that. Not initially. What you talk about is you point your fingers, you point your finger at God and you say, this is what God has done. This is what he's done. This is what he's done. That's what it means to be a, an evangelist. The, the root word of evangelist is, well, it's, you know, it's, it's euangelion, which if you saw that written out, you would recognize it. And it, you, you can hear it a little bit, you know, because that U is, comes in English as a V. Euangelion is evangelion or evangelism. And what it means is good news. An evangelist is somebody who goes out there and tells good news. And in fact, right here in the text that we used in Luke 4, it uses that word, the verb form, when it says, where is it? Luke 4, verse 18, he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. That word proclaim good news, that's all just a Greek verb, euangelizo, which is this, it's basically evangelize. It's to, to tell good news. So here's the thing. What do you and I need to do when it comes to our engagement and with and interaction with people who don't know Christ? Where we start is we tell them, this is what God has done. This is how awesome he is. This is, this is the God I serve. This is, these are the wonderful things God, God has done. You know, evangelism is a whole lot more about what God has done and, and less about what we are to do in order to respond to that. And I'm not saying it's not part of it, because I, I believe it is, and you'll see that in the New Testament. You'll see, you, you'll see an also an emphasis on, on what people do in response to that, but that's not where it starts. It starts with an emphasis on what God has done. So here's, here's what I want you to think about. Um, when we teach, when we, we want to share faith with people, we want to be proclaimers, what we do is we tell what God has done. This is, this is a beautiful thing. Uh, this is where I was. This is how I, I lived. Uh, this is, this is where, where God has, has brought me. This is, this is what he's done. This is what he's done through Christ. This is the hope that we have. I see that pattern in the New Testament as well. In, in Acts 2, for example, where Peter says, repent and be baptized. He tells them what they need to do. But you look, you look to his sermon, and his sermon is very much... God-centered. This is what God has done. This is what Jesus has done. This is who Jesus is. This is how awesome he is. And then they interrupt him and they say, wow, what do we need to do? See, that's where people go when they truly believe the gospel. And the gospel is good news. That's where people go. They, 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 they're overwhelmed with it. Wow, that's incredible. God, Jesus, this is, this is awesome. What do I need to do to that? What do, how do I respond to that? And Peter's answer is, you need to obey the gospel. 
You know, you need to obey. But the proclamation has, has, it has two phases, if you will. It starts with and has an emphasis on God is incredible, he's wonderful, he's beautiful, and he's powerful, this is what he's done. And this is Jesus, Jesus is God, this is, this is how Jesus lived, this is what he taught, this is what he did on the cross, this is, this is Sunday morning, the tomb is empty. And this is what he promises, this is the hope we have in him. And when people believe that, their response is going to be, wow, what do, where, where do I come in? How, how do I respond to that? And, and then our response is, you obey the gospel. You identify him with baptism, through, through baptism. You, you respond with, you know, with faith, and you, you come to faith in Christ. I believe that when we emphasize what we need to emphasize, there will be a whole lot fewer questions about, or a fewer hang-ups with baptism. Like, do I really need to do that? I mean, is that that big of a deal? Well, I don't understand why, you know, that, that sort of thing. Or, uh, less of a, less of a hang-up about other aspects associated with coming to faith in Christ. Because when people truly believe that God is Yahweh, that Jesus is God, that this is what he's done, Baptism is not going to be a stumbling block for people who are convicted of that. But we've got to do, make sure that we do a good job of proclaiming who God is and what he's done in Christ. And then people say, hey, I need to do something in response to that. I want to share with you one closing verse. And it's where the word proclaim is used one more time. And we've just looked at a handful of them. But Mark 5.20 says this. This is, this is the story of the man or the men who were... They lived in the caves. They had the legion of demons. They, it was an awful, they kept breaking the chains. Remember all that, that story? Jesus cast the demons out and they go into the pigs. And um, after that, Jesus said, don't, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody what I've done. And verse 20, Mark 5, 20 says, This man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. I can't think of a better verse on evangelism than Mark 5.20. Um, Jesus had done something incredible for him. And because of various factors, probably because Jesus didn't want all the attention yet, he says, don't tell anybody what I've done for you yet. Don't tell anybody yet. And the man, and I think the man's response was, are you kidding me? I'm not going to tell people what you've done for me. And he disobeys the command of God. He disobeys Jesus, and he goes out and tells everybody what Jesus has done for him. And really, that's what, it, that's what it means to be an evangelist. For you, for me, is to go out and proclaim in the cities how much Jesus has done for us. And maybe there will be people who marvel as well. And their response when they marvel will be, how do I get to know this Jesus you're talking about? We talk to them about Jesus. If you're not a Christian tonight, one of the reasons uh, we're here is so we might talk to you about what Jesus has done for us. Maybe that's something we can do after church tonight or one day next week or sometime soon we'd like to talk to you about Jesus. We confess him, we believe in him with all of our hearts and maybe we'd have an opportunity to talk to someone here tonight who's, who's not yet a follower of Jesus. We'd love to do that. Maybe you're already to the point though where you recognize you want to identify with him, you want to be baptized into him, then we'll baptize you tonight. Uh, maybe you've done that sometime in the past, but your life has not reflected a consistent confession of him as the Christ, and you want to come back to him tonight. We're here, and we'll help you however we can spiritually. Let's stand and sing this song. If you need to respond, I hope you'll come.